Welcome to New Cities Sermon Podcast. Join us as we root deep in God's Word, expecting to be encouraged, challenged, and formed to be more like Jesus together. Let's get into the scriptures now. We're continuing our series called Faith for Exiles. And, and what we're doing in this series is we're looking back to the Old Testament and we're exploring what's called the exilic period or the period of exile after Israel had been rescued from Egypt, after they had, had uh, gotten the promised land, they were taken out of Jerusalem and out of Egypt, sorry, out of Jerusalem and out of Israel, and they were captured and brought to Babylon. Now, where we are tonight is we're in the story of Esther, and the story of Esther takes place once Babylon has fallen and Persia has risen up. But the reason that we're looking at this series is because the New Testament uses that idea of being in exile as a metaphor for Christians. Christians can be outsiders when it comes to our culture. In other words, not everyone's a Christian, and not everyone likes that you're a Christian. And sometimes we have to learn how to live like that. We have to learn how to live as as cultural exiles. And tonight, as we look at the book of Esther, I want to ask a couple questions just as you think about your own life. As you do think about your own life, what really guides your life? Like if you were to functionally look at your life and the decisions that you make and how you live, what would someone else say guides your life? Do do you live as if there's a supernatural guiding hand, someone behind the scenes guiding you? Or or maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian and you're exploring spirituality and you kind of look at life and you say, I don't think there is a guiding hand. I think everything's random or I think everything's left up to chance or maybe even you believe in fate. A lot of people talk about when their life has a trajectory or a direction that there's things like coincidences and a lot of people talk now about manifesting their destiny or, or even even getting messages from the universe about where they're supposed to go and what they're supposed to do. And I think the reason that we feel this way is all of us want this sense that our lives mean something and that our lives are connected to something greater that is guiding us. Recently, I saw this really funny video on Instagram, and I'm going to play it for you here in just a minute, but it's a conversation between this girl who's pretending to be herself, and she's also pretending to be the universe. And she's telling the universe, oh, I got that message that you gave me about my life. And the universe, played by her as well, is talking back to her. So if we can play that video. I got all green lights on the way to Starbucks this morning. It's like, okay, universe, heard you loud and clear. You really want me to have that PSL? Mm, I I did not say that. And then the fact that right when I pulled up, a parking spot opened up. It's like, wow. Hold up a second. Do you, do you think that I'm somehow an active participant in the minutia of your trifling existence? Of course you are. Oh, no. I'm actually an ancient chain of causes and effects spanning back to, well, as far as you know, 
over 13 billion years to the Big Bang. And this morning, when you were weighing the pros and cons of getting your seasonal liquid cake, I was actually busy pulling myself apart at incomprehensible speeds while inside of me, galaxies were colliding and a bunch of other things were happening on a cosmic scale that you can't possibly comprehend because you can't even get the scale of your own planet, let alone your place in the cosmos. And to even say that I'm indifferent to your dietary choices, spending habits, or social dilemmas would be inaccurate because indifference implies a capacity for concern and I don't have a consciousness. But even if I did have the ability to consider myself and the things that comprise me, I would be no more aware of your particular existence than you are aware of a single quark inside of a single proton, inside of a single atom, inside of a single cell of the 30 trillion cells that make up your own body. But like, I'm sure you're great. I'm, you're really unique and it's cool that you're like alive and life is rare you know in the universe so what i'm hearing is the universe is telling me that i need to start taking charge of my own life sure <laughs> i love that it's so funny <laughs> here's a funny thing um during cultural exile one of the reasons that we as christians feel like we're on the outside is because we live in a very secular society we live in what's called a secular age and we, you even see in that video that what happens is when you sort of remove God, um, people sort of turn in on themselves. And, and you see that in the girl, like she thinks the universe's big message is to her to get a pumpkin spice latte. And you're like, could anything be more irrelevant than that? But I want to be honest, I think at times, even as Christians, we feel, we feel deeply at times like God isn't present with us. As we look around in our world and we look at the brokenness we feel and we look at things not working out and the pain that happens in our life, it feels as if God is not present, as if God is not relevant, and as if God is not real. If God is real, where is he? Why don't we see his mighty hand working? Why don't we see it in the world? Why don't we see it in the church? Why don't I see it in my life? That's why we have the book of Esther. The, the book of Esther tells us that as, as exiles, faith for us means having faith in a God that is unseen. And he's unseen not because he's not present, not because he's not relevant, not because he's not real, but because he's active behind the scenes. He's real, he's relevant, and he's present, but he's behind the scenes actively, purposely, with control over every detail, working things out for his people. And the book of Esther asks us, will you trust this God, this God unseen? I'm going to give you a quick flyover of part of the book of Esther before we really jump into it. At this point, Babylon has fallen and Persia has taken over Babylon. I think, in fact, we have a map. And you see that Israel started off in Jerusalem, and then they were taken into captivity in Babylon. But now that Persia has taken over this area of the world, many of the exiles have either returned home to Jerusalem or they've been taken to the Persian capital of Susa. This is 100 years after Daniel, and many of the exiles have returned, but many of them are still in captivity in a new kingdom under a new king. And in our story, we really have four characters. The first is Esther. Esther's Jewish name is Hadassah. Esther's an orphan. She's beautiful. She's cared for by her older cousin, 
and she's secretly Jewish. Her older cousin is named Mordecai. I think we have a slide for Mordecai. He is a government bureaucrat in the king of Persia's palace, and he is known to be Jewish. Then we also have Ahasuerus. I'm saying it slowly because it's hard to pronounce. He's more commonly known in history as Xerxes I. Now, if you've ever watched the movie 300, where the Spartans defend Sparta against the Persians, Xerxes was the king leading the Persians against those 300 Spartans. So we're talking about real history here. Xerxes was the king of Persia, and in this story, he likes displaying his power. He has a very fragile ego. He can't make decisions for himself, and he has a tendency to drink too much and lose his temper. And then the last important character is Haman, the villain of the story. Now, he's actually not Jewish, not Persian, but Agagite. He was a descendant of an enemy of God's people that comes from the time of Saul. And Haman is very manipulative and glory-seeking. But there's one more character in our story that should appear that doesn't appear, and that's God. The God who made promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who rescued his people from Egypt and then sent them into the Babylonian exile for their unfaithfulness and disobedience. But here's the thing about God, the character in this story. He's unseen in the book of Esther. And by that, I literally mean that he's not mentioned once in all 10 chapters. The word God does not appear in the book of Esther. Let's wrestle with that. The story starts out with King Xerxes' feast. And Xerxes has this feast that lasts for 187 days. We recently had a birthday party that lasted six hours for one of my children, and that was a long time. But 187-day feast, Xerxes has this party, and it's to display his wealth, his greatness, and his power. The, the decor of everything, the dining room, the drink cups, the goblets, everything is gaudy and fashionable because Xerxes wants people to know his wealth and greatness. And as he's having this 187-day party, and as everyone's seen all this wealth and power and greatness, Xerxes thinks, you know what? As they're seeing all this stuff that I have, I might as well bring out my beautiful wife and let them see her as well. Xerxes' wife was named Vashti, and Vashti was having a party at the very same time. And so King Xerxes sends word to Queen Vashti and says, get on over here and let these men look at you. And Vashti says, I am not going over to a party that's been lasting 187 days that's full of drunk men. And so she says, no, I'm not going, I'm not going. Well, immediately Xerxes kicks her out as queen and he writes a new decree that she's no longer queen, and they're going to search for a new queen. So the word goes out over all of Persia, and they find the most beautiful women to bring and sort of try out being queen. Now, I say try out, but it's actually much darker than that, because what they're doing is they're bringing these women to join the king's harem. Now, Esther is brought 
to become part of the king's harem. And Esther is beautiful and, and secretly Jewish, but she's not just beautiful. She's a woman who has some depth to her and some character. And so as people interact with her in the palace, she finds favor with them, not just because of her looks, but because some, there's something deeper in her that's attractive. Now, Mordecai, as he's working in the palace, he finds a way to check on Esther. But the night comes when it's the king's turn uh, to interact with Esther. And by interaction, that's the the nicest way I can say that it's really a sexual audition. She's going to the king to see if she can please him in bed. Now, if he likes her, and if he likes her more than anybody else, she gets to be queen. But if she's just like everybody else, then she goes and joins the king's harem. Either way, it's not a great situation for her, but she goes, and he falls for her. He likes her. He recognizes there's something about her. There's both beauty and there's depth to her, and he asks her to be the queen. He crowns her, and he throws a feast for her, and Esther, this orphan girl who's secretly Jewish, becomes the queen of all of Persia. It's at this point in the story that these little coincidences start happening. Mordecai, Esther's older cousin, happens to be, just so happens to be, near the front of the palace gate. And he hears two men talking who do not like Xerxes and want to assassinate him. It just so happens that he, he's at that place at the right time and he hears the plan and he lets his cousin know, Esther know, and Esther tells Xerxes and the men are arrested. And Xerxes makes sure that what Mordecai has done is written down. Because when you help out the king, the king wants to be loyal to you because you've been loyal to him. And so what we're expecting after this coincidence is an awesome moment where Mordecai gets honored by King Xerxes and he can be put in a position of power. Except just like we had a good coincidence, we have this bad coincidence, Xerxes forgets. It's written in the record book, but he forgets to honor Mordecai and the story just moves on. Mordecai is recorded, but not rewarded. And it's at that point where you kind of go, what is happening in the story? Because that's when the villain rises up. Haman, the one who's Agagite. He's not Persian, but he's promoted into a position of power with Xerxes. And because Mordecai knows that he is the ancient enemy of his people, whenever Haman walks by, everyone bows except Mordecai. Mordecai won't do it, which infuriates Haman. In fact, Haman decides because Mordecai won't bow, I'm going to destroy Mordecai, and I'm going to destroy all Mordecai's people throughout the entire empire. At that moment, Mordecai wants to figure out wants to tap into some guiding hand that's bigger than himself about when the most opportune time is to exterminate Mordecai and his people. And so as was an ancient practice at that time, Haman casts lots. He throws dice 
called pure. That's what they called him in that day. And he looks at the dice to figure out the date and the year of when this guiding hand is going to tell him to exterminate the Jews. And it's so interesting because in that moment, it's like, it's, it's almost like the girl with the pumpkin spice latte. It's like the universe is going to tell me when I can exterminate an entire people. This guiding hand is going to help me. It's like he's so blind to himself, he can't see how self-focused he is. Well, he gets the date. The date's for 11 months from that date, and he goes and manipulates the king, King Xerxes, and says there's these people that we need to exterminate. And so the decree is issued, and the clock starts ticking 11 months. In 11 months, the Jews are going to be exterminated. And once the decree has been issued, it is locked in. You cannot reverse a decree. And everyone is reacting to this news. In Esther chapter 3, verse 13, letters were sent by couriers to each of the royal provinces telling the officials to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the Jewish people, young and old, women and children, and plunder their possessions on a single day, the 13th day of Adar, the 12th month. A copy of the text issued as law throughout every province was distributed to all the people so that they might get ready for that day. The couriers left, spurred on by royal command, and the law was issued in the fortress of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink while the city of Susa was in confusion. The king and Haman sort of oblivious to the destruction they're about to cause. And even the city of Susa that wasn't Persian or that wasn't Jewish is so confused by this edict. And you sort of get to this place in the story and you're like, wait a minute. How did all this happen where Haman gets into power and causes all this chaos and destruction? Why couldn't have God used that coincidence with Mordecai to let Mordecai get into power? And none of this would have happened. I think oftentimes in our lives, we look at coincidences that don't go our way and go, well, God's hand is with us when the things do go our way, but when things go bad, he must have forgotten because that plan doesn't seem to make any sense. In Esther chapter four, we wrestle though on a deeper level. Esther four is one of the most famous passages in the Bible because it asks us, if you don't understand what God's doing, if you can't see God or what he's doing, can you still trust him? Can you still trust him when things are dire and when things are dark? In Esther chapter four, it starts off by saying in verse four, Esther's female servants and her eunuchs came and reported the news to her and the queen was overcome with fear. She sent clothes for Mordecai to wear so that he would take off his sackcloth. He was mourning, but he did not accept them. Esther summoned Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who attended her and dispatched him to Mordecai to learn what he was doing and why. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the city square in front of the king's gates. Mordecai told him everything that had happened, as well as the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay the royal treasury for the slaughter of the Jews. Mordecai also gave him a copy of the written decree issued in Susa ordering their destruction 
so that Hathak might show it to Esther, explain it to her, and command her to approach the king, implore his favor, and plead with him personally for her people. Hathak came and repeated Mordecai's response to Esther. Esther spoke to Hathak and said, and commanded him to tell Mordecai, all the royal officials and the people of the royal provinces know that one law applies to every man or woman who approaches the king in the inner courtyard and who has not been summoned by the king. The death penalty. Unless the king extends the golden scepter allowing that person to live. I have not been summoned to appear appear before the king for the last 30 days. Esther's response was reported to Mordecai. Esther, you've got to go talk to the king. You're our only hope here. (laughs) Esther says, but he hasn't called me. And if I go into his throne room and he doesn't permit me to enter, it is death. It's a huge risk. So Mordecai responds to her in verse 13 and says, Mordecai told the messenger to reply to Esther, don't think that you will escape the fate of all the Jews because you are in the king's palace. If you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance will come to the Jewish people from another place, but you and your father's family will be destroyed. And then here's this verse. Who knows? Perhaps you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. For such a time as this. It's interesting as we read those last words that Mordecai sends back to Esther, we learn something about a God unseen. That Mordecai still believes that the God unseen, that the God he doesn't even mention by name, will show up. And that God will deliver. Even in the midst of the ticking of the 11 months, tick-tock, tick-tock, every day that goes by is closer to Jewish extermination. Now, it's impossible to hear that story without thinking about current events that are going on right now in the West Bank and Israel and Gaza. And and I want to speak on that, but that'll come a little bit more in part two next week. Right now, I want to dig in to this God unseen. Because what they have seen in the past is that God delivered their people from Egypt. He was faithful to them in the wilderness. He brought them into the promised land. But that's in the past. Will God show up in the present? The the people in Israel don't have any, or the people in Persia don't have any strength. They don't have any certainty. In fact, this edict is unchangeable. There's nothing they can do to change it. And though they don't see God, will they trust? I find that to be a helpful question for us. We have trouble seeing God because we have such expectations of how he will show up. And sometimes God shows up and God brings deliverance in ways that we do not expect. And we write it off as if God did not show up because he didn't do what we expected. Mordecai expects that deliverance will come. That God will deliver. And if it doesn't happen through Esther, it will come from somewhere else. Because Mordecai knows that God is a God who shows up and delivers. 
But this same unseen God is a God that calls us to participate with him in what he's doing. Esther knows that her life is at stake and she is at a crossroads. She can either act or she can be passive. She can either risk or she can play it safe. She can either walk in courage or be frozen in fear. Is God in control? Will he deliver? And will she allow herself to be a vessel that is used by God as part of the plan? That's so helpful for us in our secular moment, our moment where we can't really see God. We wonder where he's working. We wonder what he's doing because everyone, like the girl with the pumpkin spice latte, everyone is looking for something great to guide their individual story. But the God unseen is is someone great who is calling us to participate in his story, even at great risk to ourselves. It makes us ponder maybe one of the reasons we don't see God is because God is calling us to be the ones that other people see him through. God becomes seen through Esther, through her participation. They've lost the land. She's in a story full of drunkenness and murder and sex. And what Mordecai is saying to her is, don't you remain unseen. This is God's time for you. God is going to show up through your actions. And I think the same is true for us. God has us here in this moment, in this culture, in this place. It is no accident that we're here. It's no accident that we have the challenges before us that we have. And so easily we can get caught up in our own safety and our own comfort. We can get caught up in nostalgia about how things used to be. Or we can get caught up in politics and playing that game. But we need boldness to be representatives of God and to participate with him. One of the quotes that I read that really sums up, I think, what God is calling his people to in exile is this one from French uh, mystic, Simone Weil. And it says this, you could not be born at a better period than the present when we have lost everything. That seems so counterintuitive to our sense of safety and our sense of self-preservation. But here is Esther for such a time as this. Esther, you could not be born at a better period than the present when everything is at risk, when even your life is on the line. This is our moment. Right now in this culture, this is God's story for us. And may we not miss the moment by playing it safe. Maybe, Maybe we'd be willing to take the risk. Esther's called to take the risk for who? For other people of God. And I think the same is true for us. We're called to take risks for other followers of Jesus. Right now, it's really trendy that if another follower of Jesus hurts you, you have an excuse to never engage another follower of Jesus forever. You can be a Christian by yourself. But what this story reminds us is that any time that we step out on a limb for anybody in the family of God, it is always a risk. So what does it mean for us to risk ourselves and love someone else? What does it mean for us to put other people's needs before us? 
What does it mean even to take a risk and share Jesus with someone who might be mad at us when we do or obey Jesus when following him might be costly? This is our moment. God calls us to participate even though at times we cannot see him. And the only way we can do that is if we rest in the fact that he's in control. One of the things that I love about Nat is whenever I make a mistake or whenever something happens that I don't want to happen, Nat always reminds me, hey, God's in control. I'm like, oh yeah, thanks, Nat. I'm a pastor, should remember that. But that, that, that idea that God's in control, it's, it's this word called providence, that everything is in his hands from the fall of Babylon to the taking over to Persia to even the little coincidences where Mordecai hears the plot but isn't rewarded, God is sovereign. He's in control. It's all under his providence. And Esther knows that. And so she takes the risk. In verse 15, Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go and assemble all the Jews who can be found in Susa and fast for me. Don't eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my female servants will also fast in the same way. After that, I will go to the king, even if it is against the law. And then these bold words, if I perish, I perish. So Mordecai went and did everything Esther had commanded him. What guides your life? As you live your life, is there a guiding hand? Is it all random? Is it just up to your choices or fate or destiny? Is it coincidences or is it something you manifest or is it the universe giving you messages? Many people say, I tried God, but life was too hard. And so I blame God for that. But look, if you live your life thinking the universe is giving you messages, then you still have the universe to blame when things go bad as well. You have the same problem whether you choose God or whether you choose the universe. But what Esther tells us is that the God you might not see is the God who sees you. The God that you might not see is the God who sees you, and he has a plan for you, and he has a plan to use you. And that plan is not for a comfortable, safe life, but a life of purpose that matters. As the worship team comes back up, I want to point you to the ultimate example of this, that his plan to get to you was a plan of his sovereignty that involved great risk. Jesus came to sacrifice himself, and he used the brokenness and evil of people, but it wasn't outside his plan. Rather, the brokenness and evil that put Jesus on the cross was part of God's plan so that by believing in Jesus, by accepting his death on the cross, by trusting in him and his resurrection, we could be reconciled to God. See, the universe isn't left up to chance. It's not random. Rather, it's very purposeful, with the most purposeful moment being this. Acts 2.23 says, This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, 
you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. Even though it seemed so unjust what happened to Jesus, it was all part of God's plan to ultimately deliver. See, through Jesus' death, we find life. Through the cross, he was punished for our sin so that we might go free. Through Jesus, we see God acting on our behalf, defeating our enemies of sin, death, and the devil, rising again to new life. The king of the universe in control of all things. This is how God shows himself. Next week, we'll continue the story of Esther. But I want to remind you, life is not up to chance. God is in control, and he wants to use you. And the more that you believe that, the more you'll find yourself risking for him and resting in him. I want to invite you to stand. And before we sing this song, I want us to say this ancient creed. The first question of the Heidelberg Catechism, which is from hundreds of years ago, gives our hearts a place to rest. If you can put it up there, it says, what is your only comfort in life and in death? And then you can say this with me that I am not my own, but belong body and soul in life and in death to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood, and he has set me free from the tyranny of the devil. He also watches over me in such a way that not a hair can fall from my head without the will of my Father in heaven. In fact, all things must work together for my salvation. Because I belong to him, Christ, by his Holy Spirit, assures me of eternal life and makes me wholeheartedly willing and ready from now on to live for him. Amen. Thank you for joining with us as we rooted deep in God's word. If you found this sermon encouraging, share it with a friend. You can learn more about New City by going to newcityhh.com or checking us out on social media by searching New City HH. We'll see you next week.